Welcome to the His Light and Life podcast with your host, Mark, who will be your guide to enhance, deepen, and enrich your Christian life. To turn your focus away from just getting by to walking with God in His light and life. Welcome back to His Light and Life. Today we are going to pick up where we left off last time, talking about the defeated foe. And uh, I want to, we, we laid a bit of a, found, we laid a good foundation that Satan isn't the villain, that he is a defeated foe. So now let's look at it from a different angle and say, okay, how do we know that? What, what would be, there has to be something that would be a limiting factor for him that we could be able to specifically put our finger on and say, okay, um, like almost, not, I, I want to say an alibi, but not an alibi. It's almost the, the, the difference of an alibi, the reverse of an alibi. An alibi is evidentiary proof that, you know, that makes the person accused of something, makes it him unable to have been there. He was over here, so obviously he wasn't over there. And there's virtually nothing better than an alibi. And I don't know what the truth, the opposite of, the, of an alibi is, but let's just look at it, for example, something that if, if Satan would obviously do if he could. So it's almost like, it's not like he's innocent. I'm, I'm, my position is not he's innocent because he's over here, so he obviously couldn't do that. My position is he is right there in the middle of it, and certain things happen that he wouldn't want to happen. So if he didn't want them to happen... Uh, why did he, why does he allow them? Why doesn't he intervene? So let's look at it from, I want to read a couple of verses here. First of all, it's Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. It says, remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is none else. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring, it's interesting that God uses this definition here to declare one of the major uniquenesses of him. He says here, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will do all my pleasure. That was Isaiah 46, 9, 10. But I want to draw initially to the distinction that in, like, the descriptive is further proof or evidence. The descriptive is what God in this verse desires to be understood by. He's using it as a point of distinction, a point of difference from him and everything else. And by that, he's saying, remember the former things of old, for I am God. And there's none like, none. there's none, none else. And then he says, I am God and there is none like me. And the definition or the descriptive of that, he says, because declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times, the things that are not yet done. So he's saying that no one, nothing can know the future. He's the only one. He declares it and then he, and he knows it and his, and his declaration cannot be undone or stopped. Now that is where we're going to start today. I want you to picture God has spoken it. He's declared it. He's the only one who knows it, knows its full outcome, knows all the implications of it. And no one else can. 
Okay? So I'm going to read another verse, actually. This is in Genesis 15, 12 to 14. And it says here, And when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. And lo, a horror of great darkness fell upon him. And he said unto Abraham, Know of a surety that thy seed, this is God speaking, that thy seed shall be a stranger in the land. He's talking about the children of Israel here. He's talking about his descendants. And uh, a land that is not theirs. So they will be, their seed shall be strangers in a land that is not theirs and shall serve them. And they shall afflict them 400 years. And also that nation whom they shall serve will I judge. And afterwards shall they come out of with a great substance. So now this is a declaration long before the children of Israel were enslaved in Egypt, were their slaves for 400 years. This all came to pass. And then we know that they came out with a great substance. Okay? So I just want to lay a foundation of the, a confirmation of the verse that I'd read first, that God knows the beginning from the end, the end from the beginning, that he's the Alpha and the Omega. And this de declaration that he'd made to Abraham. Now, I want to just pause for a second. And this is one of those situations where um, you might want to draw a bit of clarity. Uh, the Lord, you know, you want to find his mercy or in his purpose. You're going to find his mercy in his purpose. Now, you have to understand something that God has made a promise to Abraham. And that promise we talked about way back was that he would have descendants, a lineage, a descendants like the sand of the sea and the stars of the sky. And we spoke about that, and we talked about there are two distinctly different groups of people. There's an earthly group of people, the children of Israel, and there's a heavenly group of people, the elected before the foundations of the world, the heirs of salvation. Now, you have to understand this, and this is, this is a rub for a lot of Christians. The old covenant is not a salvation covenant. The elect during that epoch were saved, but the majority of the children of Israel were not. <laughs> By far, were not. Their, their, the sacrifices that they had in the tabernacle in the wilderness and then the Zerubbabel's temple, Solomon's temple, the temple of Herod's temple in the days of Jesus, there was no salvation in those sacrifices. Those were appeasement sacrifices that meant that by these these offerings and sacrifices god could be with them that doesn't mean that they could be with god in eternity and there's a huge difference between god amongst the people and the people amongst god in eternity okay and we have huge gaps in the children of israel's rebellion whereby there, there was no possibility. If that system of the old covenant of sacrifices and atonement purchased salvation, then you have huge, huge gaps in the children of Israel's history when that was not even possible. You know, in the days of Jesus, they, they don't even know how long the Ark of the Covenant had been gone. They were pouring in that temple that was there in Jesus' days, in Herod's temple, they were pouring the blood out on a stone. They were pouring it out on a stone. The ark was long gone. They, we don't know where it went. I have a theory, but I'm not going to share it. But, I mean, it's long gone. And it had been gone for hundreds of years. Okay? 
So it's important to understand when you're making that distinction. Now, so you look at the children, we have to understand that we're looking at the children of Israel now, and God has made a promise to them that they're going to be slaves in a strange land for 400 years, and then they're going to come out of that land, and they're going to move into another land, and they're going to have huge substance when they come. The question that people never ask themselves is, why did God allow the children of the earthly lineage to be in captivity or to be... Um, you know, enslaved in Egypt. Why did he allow that in the first place? I mean, we know in the going moving forward there that they were taken captive many, many times based upon rebellion. But that's not how they ended up in Egypt, and they certainly weren't there because of rebellion, and they didn't stay there because they were rebellious. They became the work party of the most powerful nation on earth. Now, what was going on in Canaan's land, which you'd know as the promised land at that time, I'm talking people killing each other with sticks and clubs. Brutal violence was going on in that land. Everybody against everybody. You know, when the children of Israel got to the promised land, they came to Jericho. Giant men, walled cities, fortified. Right? They didn't build the walls to keep the wild animals out. Everyone was rising up in the sense of building a little empire. Still do it today. Adam builds empires, and then he tries to protect his empire. And he tries to protect his empire from other Adams, because they're going to come and they're going to steal his empire. We live in a more technical version. We live in a more, uh, you know, uh, with a higher technology version of the, of the promised land of that day, but it's no different. I mean, instead of walled cities today, we have... Antiviruses and cyber protection. It's a cyber war that's going on today. It's no different than back then. Back then they wanted to, you know, come in and steal the stuff you have. Now they want to jump over the firewall. You know, they even call it that. And steal your stuff today. Adam's a thief. <laughs> he's going to steal. He's going to kill. He's going to do everything he can because Adam is fallen. He's ruined. But today we're going to back up a bit and we're going to talk about this. Why did God send the children of Israel, have the children of Israel ultimately become the servants of Egypt? Well, I want you to picture, for example, of for a, sec for a second, how many of them there were when they were taken into captivity. Not very many. If they had gone into the promised land or if they had gone into the purpose and plans of God, if God had returned them, to the land that he had promised onto Abraham at that stage, what were their chances of survival? The chances of survival were slim to none, simply because they really weren't a nation, they really weren't a people yet, and they really would have had no way to defend and protect themselves. Okay? So what does God do to protect them? He sends them to, they're in Egypt, they become the slaves. Now, who were they the slaves of? The Egyptians. What was the most powerful empire in the world at that time? Egypt. So do you think the who had the greatest army at that time? Egypt. Do you think that God was going to allow anything to happen? Or that you think the Egyptians were going to allow anything to happen to their servants? No. So while they were there for 400 years, they were safe. They were protected. They were protected. And then they grew up, they multiplied, they even multiplied to a point where we see 
the Egyptians became they became extremely scared. They became very concerned about the the strength and the power. They said, you know what? The, they're multiplying so quickly. They're multiplying faster than anything we've ever seen before. If they are allowed to continue, our servants actually will become a problem for us. They'll become a threat. We'll have a threat within our own borders. So that's when you can follow the story on and the edict. But now when they were delivered from Egypt, they were a nation. When they went into the into the wilderness first, they were a nation of people. You had the 12 tribes. We don't know the numbers. I've read more, you know, I, I'm not kidding you. Every book I opened had a different number. But we know, I think the lowest I've come across is about 1.2, 1.4 million. And the highest I've come across is about 3.6 million. A lot of people. A lot of people. And that is a nation. All right. So when you talk, so now notice that God had prophesied this. God had spoken it ahead of time to Abraham and that it came to pass. Now I want you, I've only laid that as a foundation because we know the Bible contains prophecies concerning a wide range of events. Okay. Now in every one of these situations, we know that God sees all things from a comprehensive knowledge. Best way I've ever heard this explained to me is you know there's there's a, a comprehensive view or a would be like you pull up to a to a railway crossing ding 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 the thing goes down train starts going by and then you see a car and then chin 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 the cars go by your point of view of that situation is one car at a time now i want you to picture for example each of those cars being an age i mean just make them i don't know for simplicity let's make them let's make them a hundred years let's make them 400 years whatever now i want you to picture instantly so that those cars have a lot of them have gone by you and there's still a lot to come you're halfway through the train at your particular time that you're there so you're living in that particular hundred years and you see the events going by in that time around that time like one car at the, at the railway crossing now picture you turn your car automatically, boom, presto, it's a helicopter, and then you crank it on, and you go straight up, because there's trees on both sides of this road, and you go straight up. Now you look, what do you see? You can see all the way down to that engine that passed a long time ago, and you can see all the way back to the caboose that's still yet, yet to arrive. Okay, so that's a comprehensive view of events and times. So you, when you think about terms, God is not limited. He's not stuck in time. His knowledge is not linear. When you're sitting in that car, in a car, looking at that train going by, you have a linear view. But if you go up, you have a panoramic view. You have an, you have an omni view. Okay, it's all laid out before you like a blanket. You can see the whole thing. And that's God's knowledge. And you have to understand something, that he is not in any way, shape, or form limited by these events. He does not have to have this event happen in order for him to do that. We do. I mean, you think of what I mentioned earlier in another podcast, you talk about putting together the ingredients to make a cake. You have to have the right things and the right times and the right amounts and everything to go like that. God is not limited in that way. He can make things happen the way that he wants to make them happen. Okay, so in that situation, we see that there's clearly a 
spoken word onto Abraham, where he's given them the panoramic view. So God's in the helicopter telling Abraham that the children of Israel are going to go to Egypt. They're going to be there for 400 years, and then they're going to come out with great substance. So I want you to think about when you think about God speaking in the word, he's speaking that way. He's not speaking linear. He's speaking as a part of the big picture. He's speaking in a, as a part of the big picture. We're at one place in one time in one, we see one linear view. God does not see these things that way at all. Now you picture the Bible, how many of those statements, and you remember, we're still talking about the defeated foe. We're still talking about the powerlessness for the most part of Satan. But you think about in the Bible, there's all kinds of examples where God spoke something way before it happened. I mean, you think of a couple off the top of my head would be the birth of his son. You have, you know, I already mentioned you could have like the, the um, you know, the Jewish people going into the land, into the promised land. You would see that there's, you know, even look way farther down the road. You have the Battle of Armageddon. We have an Antichrist at the end. We have all of these events that have happened and, and taken place. Right? Jesus prophesied that the temple would be t torn down. They took him up on beside it and they said, look at these great things. And they said to him, he said, truly I say unto you, there's nothing here that will not be cast down. Every stone that is here will be cast to the ground. No stone will be upon another, right? So let me ask you a question. I mean, let me put it this way in the form of a question. Is God limited to what he has spoken? I mean, we, we went back there before. He says, declares the beginning from the end. He makes a, de a, a declaration of it. So yeah, he is limited. I want to take you, for example, for, to, for a second. I want to put us into a court of law, okay? And I want to make this, I want to make this point from the position of a point of the court of law. If let's say, and I'll be very brief on this because um, um, I do talk about it in a lot more depth. But for this portion, and maybe we'll get back to it. I just want you to think about a lawyer who's a defense lawyer. So his client has been accused of committing some crime doesn't matter what it is. He's been accused of committing some crime. And on the other side, you have the prosecution. They're the ones that are trying to put the defendant behind bars. And the prosecution, um, he has basically brought forth this case before the judge, and he's pinned, he's pinned his whole case upon the eyewitness account of a single witness. One witness saw something and that witness is what the prosecution has pinned his entire case upon. So you have the opening arguments. You have this, that, and the other. Uh, the prosecution's witness goes up on the stand. The prosecution asks him several specific questions. And they get answers. The defense lawyer now gets to cross-examine the witness. And he starts asking the witness questions. And in the answers to those questions, this witness gives contradictory answers to the answers that he gave to the prosecuting the prosecution's questions. You're not saying the same thing. There's a contradiction between the original 
his original words and the original questioning from the prosecution and these answers that he's given to the defense attorney's questions. And they concern the similar, they concern the same events. They're not completely abstract. These are the virtually the same questions, but they're given different answers. Now, I want you to sit for a, sit for example in for a second in the seat of the prosecutor. Do you know what he just witnessed? He just witnessed his whole case go up in smoke. Poof, gone. And the defense lawyer, he just said, "Your Honor, I ask for a ruling of dismissal." based upon the evidence that's been presented to this court by this witness of the prosecution. And the pros- the judge will ask the prosecutor, do you have any, qu- do you have any objections to that? And the, and the prosecution's going to go, no. Bang, you're going to hear the big sl- hammer slam down, and the judge is going to say, court dismissed. And that's because the entire case was thrown out and based, the defense lawyer doesn't even have to make his case now. He doesn't have to present the defendant's alibi. He doesn't have to do anything. He doesn't have to do a single thing. Everything else now is, is classified as circumstantial. There's no proof that this man did it because the entire case was based upon the eyewitness account of the prosecution's witness. It's been contradicted and it's thrown out. Now, in that case, I told you that they said everything wrong. So the same questions, and they gave a completely different answer. Let's say 10 questions. 10 questions, the prosecution asked. The witness answered 10 questions. Ten questions, same 10 questions or very similar spoken 10 questions that the defense lawyer asks. Completely different answers. Now, what if nine of the questions were the same answer? but one of them was different. And let's say it was an important one. Would one of them be enough to have the case thrown out? It would be. It'd be plenty enough. And like I say, the defense lawyer doesn't even have to prevent present a defense for his witness. It's over right then and there. And that's going to be the foundation going forward. I will see you next time on His Light and Life. And we're going to explain in depth why Satan cannot be the villain. Thank you for listening to His Light and Life. Do you have questions or want to speak with Mark? Please reach out using the email in the description. We'll see you next time on His Light and Life.